0: listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. You're listening to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week we're going to talk about the top 10 most common beginner mistakes that people make when they're just getting started off into the dart frog hobby. Uh, These are common mistakes that many people make. Of course, many of us who are intermediate experience keepers Many of us made these mistakes when we first started out, but I think it's important that we discuss them and you know why people make these mistakes and how to learn from them if we do make them. But um before that, of course, thanks to everybody for the nice five-star reviews on your favorite podcast players, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and thanks to everybody who's a patron of the show as well. If you're interested in supporting the show, becoming a patron is a great way to do so. I have tiers as low as a dollar a month. You know, for a dollar a month, you can support the show. And the most dola- the most popular tier, of course, is the five dollar a month tier. That'll get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, which is, of course, pretty cool. And for everything else, follow the link tree in the show description. That'll take you to the merch store if you want to get some t-shirts, stickers. Uh, I even have socks. If you, if you guys want a pair of socks, I have socks on there with pretty cool dark frog designs. And uh, you'll also find links to in-situ ecosystems if you want a 10% discount off your purchase just for being a fan of the show. Make your purchase through that link. You'll get 10% off. And of course, there's a link for Panamanian frog conservation in there as well. If you're looking to make a donation to a great charity, everything there goes to Project Golden Frog. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. It goes straight to them. But um, yeah, so let, let, let's let get into it. So um, let's think back when either we were first starting out, at, you know, people who are intermediate or beginner, or excuse me, intermediate or experts. And let's think about, you know, what it takes for a beginner to want to get into this hobby. And of course, obviously, you're going to want to get into it because you have, an appreciation of of the animals of the frogs themselves they're, they're beautiful they're uh they're fun but they're also challenging to keep and it's it's not for everybody so if you are a beginner and you're interested in dart frogs welcome you're in the right place and um let's talk about some things that you're going to want to avoid and some of the common missteps that people have made along the way so first off i think that before we really get into um before we get into mistakes that people make once they've got the frogs the number one well well beginning at number one not necessarily in order but um the first mistake people generally make when they're getting into the hobby is getting information from the wrong sources or from from bad sources so what's a good source and what's a bad source well a bad source uh in my opinion is any number of things really uh, bad source of information is oftentimes gained uh, oftentimes designed to sell you product. Uh, I noticed that there's a lot of frog information, a lot of frog stuff online, uh, especially on YouTube, which is basically just a commercial for a lot of like these you know bigger, bigger companies. and um you know they'll go through everything you need, and then coincidentally, at the end, there's you know a link to everything to buy and the purchase. So um, y- try to avoid anybody with an agenda. Try to avoid anybody who's looking to sell you things. Obviously, you're going to need to buy things, and that'll that'll play in later, but don't base all your husbandry advice on a shopping list, okay? Just because someone comes at you and says you need to buy A, B, C, D, E, um, you can buy those things from wherever you want, you know what I mean? You, that's, that's your choice, but uh, try to avoid anything with an agenda. That That's kind of a commonly accepted thing is, um, you know, don't, don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into someone saying, well, if you want to get into the hobby, you have to buy this that and the other thing and oh by the way here's a link in the show and you know you end up watching the video and the whole thing is basically just a commercial with very very little information and that's what i mean is um you know lacking in a lot of of, of meat you know what i mean there's really nothing to that uh, to that video other than just a lot of product placement so um that's one one way to kind of uh, stay away from from you know poor quality information is you know stay away from the commercials um another place to avoid is i'm on the fence about this I'm not on Facebook, so I don't like to make comments about Facebook, but from what I understand, there's all these little kingdoms that have kind of developed, and some people have ideas about this, and some people have ideas about that. Uh, the dark frog world, there's generally a lot of consensus. I really haven't heard much in the way of um, like major disagreements about husbandry and whatnot. I, I don't hear that about that the way I hear it in other worlds, like the way I hear it in like invert and, and, and reptile stuff. Uh, but that's not to say that it isn't out there so try and find a good source Um, there's a lot of message boards out there i'm sure there's plenty of good facebook groups and there's also people on instagram who are very very well versed in dart frog care and look to those spots look to places where you can get quality objective information people who are going to want to be encouraging um you know sometimes advanced keepers can get a little bit tired of the same questions being asked by new keepers and um you know, sometimes newer keepers will, you know, might have, a sometimes I've seen people have a little bit of an, a little bit of an attitude actually. And, um, you know, just remember to be humble. You're looking for people who have more experience than you, uh, be willing to take their advice. And the other thing is don't just get it from one source, try and source your information from as many places as possible. So, um, you know, try to avoid anything that's going to be, I guess the word I'm looking for is kind of like, that would adversely affect your ability to keep. Um, try to stay away from anything that you know is going to be kind of like just cheese or like fluff. You know what I mean? That's, that's kind of the expression they used to use was like fluff. Um, no filler. No real content. No real information to it. Dig deep into the subject matter. Um, you know, read a, read some scientific papers. Read some journal articles. Watch some videos about wild frogs. Read some articles about wild frogs. That'll give you some insight in terms of how they live in nature and how to best replicate what they need in captivity, if that's what you're looking to do. And of course, another great way to, you know, build your knowledge base is, uh, you know, good, good keepers, you know, find the right people. Uh, There's some really good people out there online. Um, A lot of people I'm friends with on Instagram, some good YouTube videos as well. Uh, You know, if you're going to YouTube, try and find people who know the frogs, people who aren't doing a, um, you know, aren't doing a build just for, just reviews, people who are really passionate about the subject, people who put a lot of time and effort, their frogs look good, they're well fed, they have nice, I mean, not everybody's vivarium is going to be spectacular, but, you know, people who who are building good quality vivariums, for all intents and purposes, they're the people you want to go to, you know, people who understand how to build a vivarium, how to keep frogs, people who keep more difficult to difficult to manage frogs as well. You know they might be able to give you some advice even if you're starting off with the beginner species. So try and find a, a good source of information. Try to find a good place to do research, and just read and read and read and ask as many questions as you can. And when you feel like you're ready, then I feel like you're ready to to make the jump. You know people will say, well, how do I know when I'm ready? Well, hopefully you'll just you'll you'll know you'll know when you have enough information at your disposal to be able to make good decisions. So the second most common mistake I see people making is purchasing the frog itself. And this is generally when people purchase a frog from the, the wrong place. Uh, I mean, I, I have my preferences in terms of how, where, and when I acquire frogs, you know, who I purchase from, but um, the beginner coming out might not necessarily have developed relationships with people who have been in the hobby for a while, might not necessarily be familiar with some of the the, the generally accepted people who are you know, the most the most reliable breeders in the hobby. And, um, you're going to want to avoid, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to dig my own grave with this, but, uh, avoid big box pet stores, you know, I mean, that's not to say that people can't have good quality frogs, but, uh, the big quality, the, the big box pet stores, and I'm not going to name names, but, uh, I've never really seen any of them be able to manage frog care with any species, um, with a lot of reliability. So, I mean, it can be difficult if you're out in an area where you just don't have expos, you don't have a local reptile store, you're not comfortable with having frogs shipped. Uh, If that's your only option, that's unfortunately your only option. I mean, I've discussed what to look for in a quality frog in different episodes, but I would avoid that. I would also avoid places like that because a lot of times they don't have the information to back up what they sell. So uh, a brief little care sheet, you know, is, is helpful. It's better than nothing, but... I don't think that you can summarize everything that you would need for really any, I mean really any animal, but especially dart frogs and amphibians because they can be so fragile. Uh, I don't recommend buying from a place that's just going to hand you a care sheet and nothing else. And you should be able to ask questions of of anyone that you're buying from. You know, most dart frog people who are quality quality breeders have been in the hobby in a while they're going to make time to talk to you. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to want to know what you have set up. How long have you been keeping? Is this your first frog? Most people are going to want you to succeed. And if you're in an environment where people really don't know much about the frog, they don't know where it came from. They don't know what locale it is. They don't know what species it is. That could be really the earmarks of of, places that you want to avoid. Those are some red flags. So Make, even if you have to wait, if you have to wait for an expo, you have to wait for a breeder to kind of have what you want. It's better to be patient and get what you want than rush and get something that you're not necessarily going to be happy with later. So try and find a good vendor. I mean, everybody I've had on the show, I've had nothing but good vendors on the show. So, you know, if you're listening, you know, all the guests that I've had in the past, there's plenty of people out there. Uh, you know, I've, I've bought from guests that I've had on the show. I've had good, good, you know, good experiences with them. Uh, Try to go with that. Try to go with people who are in the dart frog world, people who specialize with this group of frogs. And, you know, avoid, my opinion, I would try, you know, avoid flippers. You know, when you go to that expo and there's that big table with 150 different species and there's that little corner with dart frogs in it, odds are those are being flipped. So just be careful. You know, you want to make sure you're getting quality frogs that are healthy, that that can be identified. I mean, if somebody just has a deli cup at an expo and it just says blue dart frog on it, Uh, I would avoid that. (laughs) I would avoid that like the plague because you don't really know where the frog came from. You don't know if it's a hybrid. You don't know what kind of care it got beforehand supplementation. So go with people who are known. Go with people who are known in the hobby. Develop relationships. Like I said, if you're getting information from people who are vendors as well, you know, and you develop a relationship, that's a great way to do it because, hey, listen, you know what? We've talked about this. We've talked about that. I'm interested in buying some frogs. Most people will be you know happy with open arms to give you as much information as you can because like i said they, they want you to do well you know nobody nobody wants anybody to fail in this hobby especially since it involves live animals so the third mistake that i see people make is really with regards to setup and this is where people make everything just way too wet high humidity high ambient humidity does not equal a saturated substrate and somehow some way i don't know where it came from but the common misconception about dart frogs is that they need to be kept super duper wet just because a species comes from a tropical area it comes from panama Colombia, peru wherever does not mean that it's aquatic does not mean that it's constantly crawling around in swampy wet conditions most dendrobatids as we know occupy areas of very very high ambient humidity but they're not crawling around in in mud constantly. I mean, they will seek out mud bath for you know for um, for the mineral content and things like that. But if you're keeping your dog frog soaking wet, they're not going to do well. And try and avoid falling into that trap. Skip the water feature. Skip the pond. Skip all that stuff. You don't need it. If you want to build a larger, more elaborate display vivarium, once you have the resources and the experience. By all means, do that. You know, if you're planning on building a big 100, 300 gallon, 400 gallon tank, go for it. But if you're starting off with an 18 by 18 or an 18 by 24, even a 36 by 36 by 18, whatever, just avoid it, okay? Because a lot of frogs can have adverse health problems. phylobates can get foot rot, and they just they just generally don't seem to like being soaking wet. You're going to want to provide them an area that is humid. But also dries at some point to the point where they're not constantly walking in this soupy, you know, soupy mess. So, you know, avoid the water fill- avoid the water feature. It's it takes practice to get it right. And to be honest, it really isn't consistent with the way wild dart frogs live. I mean, like I said, they're not aquatic. They're not crawling around in mud. They're just they're they are just they they do not do that. You know, they're more you'll see them around leaf litter you'll see them on you know stream edges they'll see them in really pretty much any environment except these big soupy muddy messes that people tend to make so try and avoid that you know avoid the avoid unnecessary stuff you want to give the frogs as much area that they can use and again if you're building a you know an 18 by 18 that doesn't give you a tremendous amount of floor space and if that is what you're using you don't want to commit half of it to a water feature that the frogs aren't necessarily going to use do I think water features are terrible? No, I don't. I think that in the right hands, in advanced keepers who know what they're doing, who can do a bigger build, who can allocate space appropriately so that it doesn't compromise what the frogs need, I think that's great. I think it's a great goal. But for the beginner, I think that it's something that really should be avoided. You can provide a small dish. I give my frogs little little dishes. They go in there. They'll soak. They're happy. They don't need this big, massive water feature to stay hydrated, assuming that you have all the humidity parameters and everything like that in order. So moving on to number four, kind of ties in with what we just talked about with the substrate being too wet. This is improper substrate choices. And one of the most common mistakes I see people use is they use really, really damp sphagnum moss. And sphagnum moss is great for certain things. It's great for shipping frogs. It's great for getting frogs home because it maintains humidity very well. But in the long term, it just, it doesn't last. It, Tends to mold, tends to rot. It's just not a great substrate. Another one that I think is not so great either is the cocoa fiber. I have it in some of my tanks, but I, I have it more dry. I don't sit, soak a big brick of cocoa fiber in water and then use that as the only substrate. It's going to maintain too much water and it doesn't really release it into the air the way other substrates do. The thinking about cocoa fiber is It's great at absorbing water, it's just not great at letting it back out again. And do I use it for certain species that need a more moist, damp substrate? Yes, I do, but not for dark frogs. It just isn't effective, it doesn't drain well. I mean, again, you're going to want something that drains, you're going to want to be able to get something that you can get wet, but not maintain all that super-duper, you know, excess moisture. So if your substrate choices aren't on par, that's probably something that you're going to want to rethink go with leaf litter over a nice drainage layer. The drainage layer can be anything. It can be a layer of Leca under some window screen. It can be sponge foam, it can be a layer of egg crate. It can be pretty much anything. It could even be gravel if you, you know, don't mind the weight on the tank. You can even use gravel. But leaf litter by and large generally seems to be the most appropriate substrate that we can, you know, that we can get our hands on now. And like I said, if it's getting too wet, add some more add some more dry leaf litter to it whatever um you know just try not to let the whole thing soak and become so bad to the point that you start getting anaerobic bacterial growth in there the substrate stinks it gets foul and then you end up having to throw the whole thing out by which you're disturbing the frog so avoid the sphagnum moss avoid the cocoa uh, the, the cocoa products try and go with either an abg mix or abg mix combined with leaf litter or anything like that and that should really set you on the right track in terms of providing proper husbandry that you're going to want for your frog and of course while we're talking about substrate we're talking about things being too wet it's important that we talk about too dry and this is number five you're not going to want the substrate to dry out to the point where it's it's bone dry you know you're not going to want complete you know complete absence of humidity so how do you accomplish that? Well, like I said, you don't want to soak the substrate and provide just a, you know, a nasty soupy mess, but you don't want it to dry out too much. So the best way to do this is to control it through misting and ventilation. For a beginner, it can be a little bit tricky because you're going to have to modify some of the more commonly available tanks. And the average beginner, you go into your pet store or whatever you buy, uh, let's just say an 18 by 24 uh, front opening terrarium, which typically has a screen top. The screen top can be a problem of course because you're going to get a lot of evaporation through there there's going to be a chimney effect those little openings that little vent in the front or just below the doors air will come in through there, and it'll rise up and it'll carry the moisture out so what i've done is made some simple modifications either using glass i, I tend to prefer glass because it doesn't really warp you can use plexiglass i find that over time though the plexiglass tends to warp especially underneath the lights and it just, it kind of loses its shape and it kind of become yellow. But what I've had with success is some people will completely remove the top and modify it. If your top, if your glass top, excuse me, if your screen top has just those four panels, best thing you can do is get four pieces of glass that are cut to cover. I like to cover the back two and I like to cover about 70% of the front one. So there'll be about an inch wide strip that runs the whole length of the top that is just exposed screen you can play around with it though if it's really really cold in the winter time and you've got your heat on and it's pulling a lot of that moisture out you can restrict more ventilation if it's really really hot in the summertime you've got a lot of humidity and you want to be able to kind of let that vivarium air circulate because obviously you don't want stagnant air you can have more ventilation it's going to be kind of a balancing act and that's one of those things that i feel like people are going to have to learn by experience because Every situation is different. It's not like there's one, you know, magic bullet that you can fire at it to solve the problem. This is, like I said, this is one of those things that kind of, you know, helps you learn how to, you know, how to maintain the parameters is you're going to have to play around with it. If you're not comfortable cutting glass, go have some cut for you at a hardware store or whatever. Obviously, be careful because glass can be sharp, so use caution. Uh, I've gotten accustomed to cutting my own glass. I am a big fan of saving old picture frames because I find that the glass... You know, an, an eight by eight or a 12 by 11, eight and a half by 11 whatever that glass is perfect you can just cut it into shape and it'll fit right over there you throw the picture frame out and you're good uh, I, I like to recycle glass that way and i find that it comes in pretty useful so you're gonna have to get used to making some modifications on your own if you want to maintain humidity some people will use fans which is totally fine i know people who like that i know people who prefer to not use fans but the ventilation aspect is going to be important because you're not going to want your terrarium to completely dry out. And Once it dries out, um, in the short term, frogs don't seem to do too well. I found that when you really let the tank dry out, at least when I've seen it, they get really, really stressed. They'll kind of ball up. They'll They'll stay out of sight because they're looking to get any kind of moisture back that they can. So in my opinion, I would say i'd prefer to be a little bit too wet than a little bit too dry just because i've seen what it does to frogs and once you start to pull all that humidity out of there it can be it it can be stressful and the frogs you'll you'll notice you won't really see them out much and um they'll kind of curl up into a little bit of a you know like a kind of go into like a little frog fetal position almost uh and they just they just they won't look good so you want to make sure that you don't let too much of that air out and um another thing you know lighting also plays into that as well You don't want to create a greenhouse effect. Remember, there's going to be, you know, the 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 lights are going to increase the amount of humidity that are in there. You're going to get, you can get a greenhouse effect. The temperature will go up. So allow some modifications to take place that you can allow ventilation to, you know, do its thing. Uh, I'm not a big fan of 100% restriction. I've done it once or twice in certain situations that needed it, but they really don't like 100% humidity or even like 90%. I'd say. If I, was to put a, if I was to put a number on it, I'd say anywhere between 70 and 85 seems to be the most comfortable with some variations from one end to the other. And, um, you know, again, you don't want to cook them in a glass box that's completely sealed with, you know, brutal 100% humidity, but at the same time, you're not going to want to allow them too much that it's going to dry out and they're going to desiccate and they're, they, you know, obviously they can die pretty quickly if they become desiccated. So that's another mistake that you want to avoid is too much ventilation or not enough. Moving on to number 7. This is another common thing that I see people do and it's improper pairings. It's generally accepted that you want to keep the same frogs together, meaning you're going to want to keep two of the same locale. You know, obviously two of the same species. You're not going to want to mix frogs up in a way that will be kind of inconsistent with what's generally acceptable in the hobby. And you know can you can you cohab an azureus with a powder blue yeah i mean you probably can but i mean there is some size difference between the two in certain situations but you don't want the frogs breeding you don't want you don't want any risk of complications and i feel like a lot of people kind of want to get into that skittles mentality when they first start out it's like well i want one of these i want one of those and you really you really shouldn't do that a couple of reasons why number one different species have different degrees of boldness there is different degrees of territoriality there's different degrees of aggression and there's even different preferences for habitat so if you're going to mix a i'm trying to give a good example here if you're going to mix two tinctorious if they don't if they grow up with each other they might be okay but um you, you can have a social dynamic that'll change and especially females Female tinctorius just seem to be really really rough on each other and you might need to separate them at some point. So, if you have got two females, or you're even two—I mean, honestly, even any any combination of frogs—I've even seen it where males will beat, where females will beat up on males. Be prepared to separate them at some point if you do have two tinctorius. Other species that seem to do well—you know, phyllobates—you can get away with the groups of phyllobates. You can get a group away with groups of um, epipedobates. You can get away, get away with groups of erratus. These are all kind of generally considered to be beginner frogs and you know there will there will be some there will be some issues if you do if you do cohab two species that are dramatically different case in point if you're if you're putting a large species like like a um like a phylobates terabilis or something like that in with something that's very very small whatever very small could end up in terribilis's mouth another thing is obviously competition for resources competition for food a frog that grows up to be much larger because it's a different species or even a different locale. There's there's some different uh, size. There's some size variation in Tinctorius. But if you're going to be keeping a frog that gets really really big with a species with another frog that stays very very small, there could be competition for resources. The other the larger frog could just out eat out compete the other one as well. Especially in a smaller tank, I feel like a lot of beginners kind of start off small, and the more frogs that you crowd into a smaller tank the more issues you're going to have to look for in terms of social dynamics. I mean, case in point, okay. Uh, I found that when you grow up, all right, I I had a group of three three female Azurias, okay? They grew up together in the same tank, large tank, 36 by 18 by 18 tank, pretty big. And, um, you know, periodically I would see them squabble, but nothing to the point where it was like really, really bad. But again, you have to keep your eye out for it. Uh, I pulled one out to move to another tank for um, a, a different reason, and as soon as I introduced her back into the tank, it was on. The 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 remaining female just, well, there were two in there, but the, one of the remaining females just came after her like right away, so there was no introduction again. But those are the things that can happen. So try not to, um, It's there's nothing wrong with going with a single frog. If you're a beginner, honestly, I think that that's the best way to go about it. They're not social, they don't need to be together, they don't have emotional bonds the way uh we do they they just they can do fine there's you're not doing your frog a disservice by keeping it alone it's completely acceptable and again you know don't go for the skittles thing don't try to mix and match a bunch of species you can cause problems you can have differences with you know differences in size and behavior some species are typically very very bold and some species are I mean, kind of be very very shy i mean for example azureus um moderately bold frog you know not t- totally like brutal as I've seen with some other other locales of tinctorius but uh, erotus in my opinion is very very shy so would I put Eratus with a tinctorius and a small tank I don't think I would I mean again frogs can have differences in personality but I don't think I would do that because I'd be worried about the Eratus getting out competed by a larger and more aggressive tinctorius as the two of them grow and of course you really don't you don't want them hybridizing it's generally a no-no it's pretty much it's pretty much kind of canon law you don't let frogs hybridize and if you end up with unwanted offspring you know it could be a problem especially if they make their way back into the trade because it has happened it does happen it's not something that's encouraged and i find that a lot of the advanced hobbyists kind of like to nip that in the bud right away so if you're a beginner and someone tells you not to do that there's reasons for it there's you know years and years and decades and decades of keeping frogs people have learned it's just really not something you want to do so um nothing wrong with keeping two species in two completely different tanks i know a lot of people like to keep multiple species i keep everything separate i don't keep anything together some people do some people with a lot of experience have figured out ways to do it but again these are people with experience people who have a lot of understanding in terms of what constitutes a proper frog behavior, proper frog husbandry. So if you're just starting out, I wouldn't get into that more advanced method of keeping just yet. Yes, it can be done. I've had people on the show, we've talked about it. People have had success with it, with cohabbing different species and different locales and whatnot. But um, I would avoid it if you're a beginner. You're just not not quite ready to make that step because, you know, obviously you're just starting out and you're going to have to get used to some of the behaviors and some of the differences in husbandry requirements that go into something that sophisticated. So th- moving on to number eight, and this is another another husbandry issue, and this is the, the wrong temperatures. I see people, I mean, it's not too common, but I've seen it where people will actually put like heat lamps over dart frog enclosures and they don't like it super duper hot i mean obviously they don't like it super duper cold but anything over 85 for a prolonged period i mean it, it, yes wild frogs do bask they will bask in 100 degree spots but they can also leave they're not kind of trapped in there. the other way they would be in a vivarium with it with the heat light that's on you know 12 hours a day you don't want to cook them they generally like it around mid to high 70s i i aim for around 75 to 77 if i can control it that seems to be the the best way there'll be a little bit of variation in the summertime i kind of panic because it gets hot but thankfully i have central air in my frog room and that can keep it pretty cool so you're not going to want your temperatures go to extremes if you do have a problem with it being too cold that's another thing i see people kind of struggle with when they're beginners uh i mean it, a night drop into the high 60s i don't see as bad because a lot of the areas where these these species come from can actually get very, very cold at night. They can go down into the 60s or even the 40s. Uh, would I recommend that prefer a prolonged period? Uh, I really wouldn't. But if it happens one or two nights, I don't think it would be the end of the world. I'd be more worried about them overheating. You know, Remember, we talked about the greenhouse effect. It's a glass box. There's not a lot of places that the animal can go. You know, if you overheat the tank, it, it can get really hot really, really fast. And obviously, things like keep the tank out of the direct sunlight... Try not to add unnecessary heat sources that might cause the frogs to cook. So, what do you do if you do need to um increase the temperature? A lot of people in Europe, I know, have this problem. It seems to be like I'm active on the the tarantula forums, and a lot of people in the UK, especially um England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Norway. Well, Norway's not obviously in the UK. That's that's in, in Scandinavia. But you uh, apparently people in Europe just have like it's it's always cold, and I don't know if it's just old buildings or whatnot, but um you can provide a supplemental heat source but the only thing you're going to want to make sure is that it's on a very very closely regulated thermostat be willing to spend some serious money on a thermostat that's something with a probe that you can at least you know make sure that your temperatures aren't getting out of control Uh, not all probes perform well under high humidity that's the other problem so if you do buy one you're going to want to make sure it's something that can be you know handled in in a in a high humidity environment you now I would don't go with one of the cheap like big box thermostats. those things are junk uh, I would go with something that's quality i have a um I have a thermostat in my blood python's tank which maintains some pretty high humidity that one cost me about two hundred bucks and you know that's a couple of years ago so uh if you are going to commit to using a secondary heat source whether it's a light bulb whether it's a heat panel a radiant heat panel whatever. Be prepared to control the temperature so that it doesn't get too out of control. The last thing you're going to want to do is overdo it and cook your frogs. But at the same time, you don't want to let them you don't want to let them freeze to death. If you can't control the temperatures in your living space, I, I wouldn't chance it. You know, if it goes down to you know 50 degrees every night and it goes up to 110 during the day, and you can't control that, you can't get into that sweet spot of around the mid to high 70s. You might want to rethink it. Um, you know, when you pick an area of the house to, to house your frogs. You want to put the tank in a certain place, you know. Don't pick the room that gets the full sun in Texas, you know, at at two p.m. in July. Same thing. Don't pick the coldest room in your house if it's you know you live up north, whatever. um You know, consider that. Consider where your where your tank is going to go, where your frogs are going to spend most of the time, because you might have to make some pretty significant modifications in terms of how you want to you know house them to keep them at the right temperatures. So. Um, that's another thing to consider because again they, they like it in that sweet spot so number nine and this is um this is i think one of the i think this is actually one of the most common mistakes that beginners make is uh i got two frogs i can't wait to breed them and sell them well there's a lot of people out there breeding frogs a lot of really good people out there who spend a lot of time and a lot of resources breeding frogs so that people can have them for relatively reasonable prices going back into the early part of this into the 70s and 80s it wasn't unheard of for frogs to sell for thousands and thousands of dollars and as time has gone by as more frogs have become captive bred it's it's just generally it's generally not common practice to have many wild-caught species anymore the price of frogs has gone down significantly, at least in the US, where it's within the realm of purchase for the average person. I mean, I've seen I've seen dart frogs, you know, Eratus and different locales of Tinctorius for as low as thirty, even twenty dollars. And then you get up to the the you know, Faga Pamilio and the large obligates, which there's a lot more that goes into their care, but I wouldn't recommend those for a beginner anyway. And those can obviously get up into the into the thousands of dollars. But the average beginner level I don't I don't I hate saying beginner level but the average species that can be handled by a beginner in terms of, of managing it with some success you really don't I mean you're not going to make a fortune. I mean you you are going to end up having frogs that you're not going to be able to to rehome, you're going to have frogs that you think you're going to sell and then not going to it's just it's it's not like that. There's so many frogs in the market out there now that the average person you know the average people breeding frogs just as a hobby um yeah if you can move them at an expo you have friends you want to trade with whatever that that's totally cool but don't think it's a beginner that you're gonna you know you're gonna reinvent the wheel with your your breeding operation and we'll tell you right now dart frogs can be really really prolific when they want to be and the last thing you're going to want is hundreds and hundreds of tadpoles and then you know potentially hundreds and hundreds of froglets that you may not be able to move without proper resources you know I've had discussions with a lot of vendors over the course of the show, and a lot of them rely heavily on dry goods for the bulk of their business you know they're selling fruit fly cultures they're selling media they're selling leaf litter they're selling ghost wood they're selling mopani wood, whatever it is and that's where the bulk of their revenue is coming from so I mean if you want to breed frogs for fun, make sure that at least that you have a, a place for them to go once they've and once they're out of the water. And the other thing is, if you are going to breed and you're just getting into this hobby, you might necessarily be familiar with what goes into good tadpole care. I mean, it, there is a learning a learning curve with tadpole care. You want to make sure that they have the right f- food for themselves so that they can grow up to be healthy. And the last thing you're going to want is obviously a lot of sickly frogs, You know, let alone a bunch of healthy frogs that you can't move. That can be a difficult decision to something to deal with. So if you're thinking about breeding, you know, keep... Keep frogs for at least a couple of years for us before you get that idea, because I see that all the time. Oh, I got two frogs. Can can someone sex them for me? And when can I breed them? I mean, if you can't sex the frogs yourself, uh, you, prob- you probably shouldn't be breeding them anyway. So give it some time. If that's your goal, that, that's fine. I, I'm not going to stand in your way, but you know, get used to keeping a single frog, pair of frogs, trio of frogs, whatever it is first before you commit to breeding them. Because like I said, there's a lot of them out there. There's enough frogs in the market. You're not necessarily helping the market out or anybody else out by breeding more Xurias or more Costa Rican erratus or anything like that. There's so many of them out there. So if that's your goal, that's fine. That's cool. But I wouldn't do it as a beginner. I think that that's something you should hold off until you've got a few years of experience and you understand the commitment that's involved in terms of having frogs have offspring. And finally, number 10, this is... Uh, this is this is a mixed blessing, I guess, but um, a lot of beginners start out and what happens is they go from zero to 60. A lot of people are tempted to buy quite a few tanks you know five six seven eight nine ten tanks they get really hard into the hobby they buy a whole bunch of frogs and then they find out at some point down the line that they're just really not into it anymore and then they've got a huge collection that they're going to have to sell off you know potentially at a big financial loss and then you know obviously the animal's well-being and welfare goes into that as well because you're not going to want to have to have to rehome you know 100 100 frogs that you've had for only a couple of years you know not everybody's like i said the market is there's a lot of frogs out there not everybody's going to be interested in just taking your collection off your hands especially if you've got a very large number so go slow take your time enjoy the frogs get an idea of how much effort goes into the hobby understand that you're going to have to make fruit fly cultures you're going to have to provide supplement, proper supplementation it's an ongoing thing, and if you go into it too fast and too hard, you may regret it later. So if you are new, you're a beginner, like I said, don't, don't try to get more than you can handle. Always go at a slow pace, figure out what you're comfortable with, what you can handle, and move on from there. So um, I hope that's it. I, and obviously, these are only 10 things on the list, and there's more, of course. You want to make sure you've got good supplementation you want to make sure you've got good plant choices you want to make sure you've got appropriate feeders but those are all things that i feel like can people can kind of figure out with basic research and i hope that if you've made these mistakes yourself you've kind of understood why some of these things are happening a lot of times people might be you know pressured by by a seller who's not the best in the world people might get the wrong information off of like a, you know off of youtube there are some look there are some pet tube out there pet tubers out there that i've seen make dart frog content which is clearly just reviews you want to you know stay away from that I've, see, I've seen that i've seen people make some really horrible enclosures um, stick with the good people stick with the people you trust people who know the frogs know the experience, know everything that's involved, go to them for information. And, uh, hopefully you <laughs> hopefully if you made it this far, you've, you've taken something away from that. I know it's kind of a short episode, but, um, you know, and again, if I've had a lot of people on the show, I, I like to think that everybody on the show is also a good resource. So, um, If you're a beginner and you're interested, you know, go back, check out some of the episodes that I've released in the past. Go check out some of the guests. I always try to link a website or a social media platform to anybody I've had on the show. So if you go back to any of the show notes, you want to find out more about a person's research, more about a person's husbandry methods, person's YouTube channel, Instagram, whatever follow all that stuff in the show notes i include that not just for for me but for the listeners as well so that if you're into the into the subject matter you want to do some research you want to go back check it out follow those links you know that's what i put them for so all right other than that i hope you guys enjoyed this i know it was kind of a short episode i've got the uh, big holiday spectacular episode coming up next week with a great guest but i wanted to put something out quickly beforehand so i mean again if you're a beginner and you're looking forward to getting some frogs this time of year Uh, I know people generally discourage getting animals for, you know, Christmas time or whatever. But um, if you have put your research in and you you do know what you're doing and you're ready and you feel like you're ready to take that next step, uh, I wish you luck. It's a great hobby. There's a lot of great people involved in it. And um, I hope that you can handle it and and have success because that's obviously what we want. So, all right, everybody, I will catch up with you guys again next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the next one.